Those are getting out safely just in time. One of my least favorite things to do over the last several years, uh, not since I've been here because we don't have any problems here, but in the past, is to confront areas of sin. And a lot of times that's been in marriages that are um, where, where there's sinful activity going on and hard to deal with. And so what, what I've noticed is when you do that, when you confront sin, and you do it in obedience to God because if you, do, if you love to do it and you do it just for the fun of it, it's not a good thing. Uh, is that sometimes things get worse before they get better. And you probably notice that too in your life in different things, different contexts. Uh, maybe as a parent you notice when you deal with areas of disobedience, if your kids ever disobey, um, it's sometimes things get worse before they get better when you deal with it. So um, that's a struggle that we all in, encounter at some point or another. So sometimes when we obey God, we do things in obedience to God because it's the right thing to do. Things get worse before they get better. And we're going to see that in Moses' life, how that worked out for him, as we look at Exodus chapter 5 today. So Exodus chapter 5, we're going to read this chapter, and uh, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read this. Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us, Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest, we fall up, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back, get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their labors, from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of, of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cried, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and Pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and find it. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as, as in the past? When the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? 
No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a, a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. May God help us understand and apply his word. You may be seated. So right before chapter 5, at the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron were having a better time. They tell the elders of the people and Israel that the Lord has met with them in the wilderness and has told them that he sees their affliction and he's going to come rescue them. And and to prove it, they did signs. God had given Moses and Aaron miraculous signs that they could do to confirm that they really did hear from God. And so the people, for the first time in in, uh, generations, had hope, and they, they, they rejoiced and they worshiped before God. So that's where we left off, and then we get Moses and Aaron talking to, to Pharaoh. So we said afterward, they go to Pharaoh, and thus they say, "Thus says the Lord." And and so the Lord, you might remember if you were here a few weeks ago, that the, the word for Lord in your in your Bibles, where it's capital L, lower uh, small caps O R D, is referring to the name of the Lord, which is actually uh, we think it's pronounced something like Yahweh. We don't know that for sure, but but Yahweh is is the Hebrew name for God, and it comes from the, the word that means I am. So they say, uh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Pharaoh's never heard of Yahweh, so he has to say this is the God of Israel that I'm talking about. Uh, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, it sounds like they're just asking to go on a church retreat. Hey, we just we just want to go on a picnic, and so just let us go and, and uh, have, a, have a feast in the wilderness. So starting with a very easy request, seems like. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? I've not heard of, of this Yahweh, so he can't be very great. I, I've not, I've, I don't know how he ranks with the other gods. I don't know if he's powerful. I don't know anything about him. I don't know his character. So, um, so, he has, so Pharaoh has no regard for, for Yahweh. His words make for a great setup for, for Yahweh, the Lord, to, um, sh- to reveal himself to Pharaoh. Whether he likes it or not, he will get to know the Lord. God will demonstrate his, his power and reveal himself to him. In fact, this is God's main agenda for Pharaoh and for the surrounding nations as well, is that they would know that he is the Lord. They, they would know that he is Yahweh. They would know that he is the God of Israel, who is also the, the God of all the earth. And so that, that's his main agenda. That's God's what he's going to accomplish. But at this point, Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord, so he makes the first of many refusals to obey the Lord and let Israel go. 
And in verse 3, we see that Moses and Aaron try again. They say the God of the Hebrews has, set, has met with us, so they're continuing to, continuing to remind him who this God is. And they ask him politely. They say, please? So you, you've been taught, like your parents trained you well, to say please, and, and that's more likely to get a positive response. They say, please let us go. Um, they ask him to, to go on a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to, to God. And he's, they say, otherwise he may fall upon us, he may afflict us with disease and disaster, with a plague or with some kind of deadly force. And of course, God does do this, only he does it to, not to Israel, but to the Egyptians. But Pharaoh doesn't know that yet. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see Pharaoh's answer. Pharaoh is not to be bothered by this talk or threats of the God of the Hebrews. So he sees Moses and Aaron as, as irritating rabble-rousers who are just distracting people from their work. They're just um, taking people back from, from their burdens. So he says they, they, they should get back to their burdens. You're making the vast numbers of workers rest from their burdens. So Egypt has become de dependent on, on the slave labor that they have. And so stop production. You're, you're holding up the economy, so cut it out and let them go back to the burdens. What's interesting is the word rest is the, the word we get the word Sabbath from it. And so uh, at this point, Pharaoh is not into them taking a Sabbath, but God will deliver his people into his Sabbath, into his Sabbath from their slavery, not into a life of inactivity and, and just ease. That's not what, what, he's, what he's going to do for them, but he's going to give them freedom from worldly oppression and, and freedom to serve the Lord. So that's God's Sabbath rest for them. And he will remind them that, that they don't uh, supply for themselves out of their own efforts only because he will give them one day in seven to, to take a Sabbath rest, an actual day of, of non-activity. So that's a, it's just interesting that word shows up at this point. Um, and, and we're reminded that when Jesus delivers us from sin and bondage, he gives us rest. He gives us rest from our worldly bondage and our, and our trying to earn our way to God. And in, you're familiar, many of you are familiar with Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus is saying there, not that I bring you into a life of inactivity, but that I am with you in living for him and serving his cause and his gospel. Because he says, Take my yoke upon you. So a yoke is something that you get into with someone else to do work. So your yoke, you, you yoke oxen together, they work together. So Jesus says, I'll give you rest in your labor for me. It's going to be a, a life-giving service and labor and not a life-killing, not, not a life-draining service and labor. So that's, uh, that theme of, of Sabbath and rest will, will, will be developed throughout the rest of Scripture. But Pharaoh obviously sees no value in these slaves taking a Sabbath. He only cares about their working for the Egyptians and building projects. So Pharaoh decides punishment is is in order. So they, they need some punishment to, to motivate them and to cut to stop them from this delusion that they can actually stop their labor. So he tells the taskmasters in verses six through nine, he tells the taskmasters to no longer supply straw for, for making bricks. The slaves need to gather straw for themselves, but they're still required to produce the same brick quota. Because the slaves are just lazy. They're just, they're just lazy. That's why they want to take a religious holiday. They're just lazy. So he says, let heavier work be given to them. May they do heavier work. In, ver in verse 9, 
this, where he says this, so that they will be working too hard to listen to lying words. So uh, I'm going to work them so hard that they're not going to listen to Moses and Aaron any, anymore. They're not going to listen to this distraction from their work. Significantly, the verb heavier is the, uh, the same word that God uses to speak of hardening of Pharaoh's, of Pharaoh's heart later on. So uh, Pharaoh makes their work heavier. Pharaoh's heart is going to become heavy or hard, and God will also um, make his heart hard in judgment. So Pharaoh thinks that by making their work heavier, he can discourage them from listening to what he considers to be lying words. Pharaoh's perspective is, is just like a lot of people think today, that, that um, faith, having faith in, in Jesus, is based on lies, myths, and, and made-up stories, and, and serve no real purpose for things that really matter. So it's it's the same kind of thing. Now, sometimes when we obey God, things get worse before they get better. Sometimes when we obey God, things get worse before they get better. So the change in policy that Pharaoh has um, has put out has immediate impact, and we see this in verses 10 through 14. So the taskmasters and foremen of the people go, and they, they tell the people Pharaoh's uh, pronouncement. I'm not giving you any more straw. Go get it yourselves. And your brick quota requirement is still the same. So sometimes when we obey God, things get worse before they get better. Now, what's the deal with straw anyway? Why is straw, like, straw doesn't seem like a very strong material, but straw uh, is, is preserve plant stalks from the more rigid long stalk plants, grains and vegetables. Straw comes from those plants that are harvested but whose stalks are inedible to humans or animals. So the stubble is like what's left. So they, they, they cut the, the, the stalks down and what's left is like little stubble from the roots to the where it cut, got cut off. And so that's what they're, that's what they're searching for. Um, but it's, it doesn't work nearly as well. Straw was a necessary component to keep the clay in place and, and help the bricks stay intact, keep them stronger and more secure. And brick making, just even with the straw, was hard labor. I mean, it was just excruciating, excruciating labor, hot, miserable process. It was difficult enough with the provision of straw, but virtually impossible without it. So um, they, they had to do the best they could to gather stubble from the harvested fields. Even when the season is right, it's hard. And let alone when it wasn't a good season, it was even harder. So they, they really were given an impossible task. The taskmasters kept demanding that they keep up their brick quota as when they had straw before. And when they didn't, the foremen of the people were beaten and were yelled at for not keeping up with the brick output. Any of you got bosses like that? Nobody on this church staff has a boss like that, I'll tell you that. Although maybe we could institute some of this. So have you experienced this in your work life, for example? Have you, you're doing your job, working hard, you're, you're doing the right thing. The boss gets ticked off at something that someone does. And suddenly the punishment comes down on everyone. Or in a family, you're a good kid and your, your brother or sister is a brat, Right. And, and so they get your parents angry, and everybody suffers. You ever experienced that? 
Nobody? Wow, you're a good bunch. So the foreman requests a, uh, a hearing with Pharaoh. And we see this in verses 15 through 19. The freshly beaten foreman come complain to Pharaoh, why are you doing this? What is the, what's the purpose of this harsh treatment? We get no straw, yet they demand we make bricks. We are beaten, but it's your people's fault. Your people are causing this problem, Pharaoh. Why are you doing this? But Pharaoh says in verses 17 to 18, you are idle. You're just lazy. That's why you want to go on a, a spiritual retreat and sacrifice to the Lord. So now go. Go and work. Read my lips. No more straw. <laughs> Pharaoh is convinced he owns the people of Israel. If they work for him. It's interesting that the word for work here is the same word that is used to refer to serving or worshiping the Lord in other verses. So depending on the context, work can be either you're, you're, you're working hard, not for God, or that you are serving the Lord. So Pharaoh says, hey, I'm God, you're serving me. After Pharaoh gets to know Yahweh, gets to know the Lord, through his mighty works, he at last will say to Moses and Aaron, go serve the Lord. So now he's saying, go, go and get back to work and serve me. But after God gets done with him, he's going to say, okay, go serve the Lord. Just get out of here. So same words, but he's got a change in perspective. Not a happy one. He just gets forced into it. When God frees Israel, he frees them to, to love him and serve him with all their heart and soul to serve him with joyfulness and gladness of heart. And you read this a lot in Deuteronomy. So you've got, got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books that Moses wrote all those. And in Deuteronomy, he's reflecting, this is what God freed us to do. He freed us to serve him, not, not freed us just to do our own thing, but, but in a joyful service, you, who you love, you, you serve. Who you love, you will gladly serve, and it's not burdensome. So, for example, husbands and wives love one another, so they serve one another. Amen? Can I get a witness? Yeah, we're all about that. Great. The foremen see that they are in trouble, and since there is no way they can keep up with the demand of producing the same number of bricks that was required of them when they were given straw, they just know, we can't do this. We're in a rotten spot. Sometimes when we obey God, things get worse before they get better. When life gets harder when it was already hard, the natural question is, who can I blame? Who do I blame? So um, in verses 20 and 21, we see what the foremen do is they blame Moses and Aaron. In verse 20, they meet Moses and Aaron. After they come out from meeting with Pharaoh, they're not happy to see them. Right in front of them, they, they ask God to curse me. May God curse you. May God judge you for what you did to us. In contrast to the current situation, Israel had believed and worshipped at the words of Moses and Aaron earlier. So, so earlier, Moses and Aaron brought them the good news that, hey, God's going to deliver you. And so they had hope. 
So you can understand they, they had the hope that God's going to move. He's going to break us out of the situation. And now they're, they're in a worse situation than they were. So they, they assume that, okay, Moses and Aaron, what did you say that ruined this? It's your fault somehow because if God told you to do this and you went in and said what you said and now what's worse for us, it's your fault. And we get it from a human perspective. We can understand their reaction because they had their hopes crushed. In none of this did they get the impression that their suffering would actually get worse. Their work has gotten so hard, they say it's like Moses and Aaron put a sword in the the hand of Pharaoh to kill them. So they say, may God judge you for making us stink before Pharaoh. Sometimes when you obey God, things get worse before they get better. Well, so the foreman blamed Moses. Now who can Moses blame? Go up chain of command. He blames God. So in verse 22, Moses turned to the Lord. Now that's good that he turns to the Lord. But he says, God, why have you done evil to this people? Well, true, God in his sovereignty, who uh, says in Proverbs 21.1 that the, the, the heart of kings is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he wishes. So he could have, he could have redirected Pharaoh's heart, but he didn't. God, how could you have let this happen? Then he asked, why did you ever send me? You persuaded me to take this job. You said that you were sending me to do this. If the oppression of my people was only going to get worse, why were you so insistent on sending me? Maybe you have experience doing the right thing. What you are certain was God's will. According to the scriptures, you just know you're doing the right thing. And the situation that you hoped would resolve got worse. John Payton was a Scottish missionary to the South Sea Islands of New Hebrides to cannibalistic peoples. Soon after he arrived to the islands in, in 1858, both his wife and newborn child died of sickness. He had left the ease of Europe for the hardships of, of the, the Hebrides and he would become well acquainted with pain. Many of his days he was just avoiding death because they were constantly coming after him with clubs and things to kill him. Is this what he gets for for serving the Lord? You've done the right thing at work. Now you're being punished. You've done the right thing in that relationship. Now you're cut off. So Moses finishes his prayer with, you have not delivered this people at all. Moses showed that he'd been thinking that God was going to do this quick time. That God was going to do it immediately. God's timing rarely fits my schedule. Often God's timing is the biggest complaint people have. 
Why doesn't God fix this now? Why doesn't God stop all the, all the evil now? God, don't you know this is people's biggest complaint against you? That you don't just stop all the evil and get rid of it now? God says, I will. I've got it on my schedule to do. But I, you have to trust me for, for my purposes of not doing it now. In the meantime, you need deliverance from your own sin through my son Jesus. You know, even if we know in our heads that God doesn't keep all bad things from happening to us, we're often overwhelmed by the realities of it when it hits, by the severity of it. In other words, we may understand that God has not promised to prevent all evil and suffering from happening to his people. But we don't have the strength, we don't have the endurance, we don't have the pain tolerance, the physical or emotional pain tolerance to endure what we are going through. Which brings up this. I've heard people say this frequently. They quote, when you're going through a hard time, well, remember, God will never give you anything you can't handle. Maybe you've said that or had it said to you. Really? Really? God will never give you anything you can't handle? How about Vanitha, a woman named Vanitha, Vanitha Risner? She had polio as a child. An infant son died soon after birth. As an adult, she developed post-polio syndrome, so her body became less and less functional. And she, she went through an unwanted divorce. Or how about Johnny Erickson Tata, who at age 17 had a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. Then at age 60, she had breast cancer, and now she deals with chronic pain. Or how about the Apostle Paul? What does he have to say about this? Well, look at 2 Corinthians. I think we have this on the screen. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, 8 through 9. Paul said this about what his experience was. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul, don't you know that God will never give anything you can't handle? Why did God do this to Paul, his top guy? Well, I think the rest of verse 9, get that up on the screen, tells us it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When life is going smoothly, when health is good, when marriage is good, when finances are good, when kids are not too crazy, they're not in jail, family is good, we virtually inevitably rely on ourselves. We just do. It's our default mode. But because God is good, 
And because Father knows best, He knows we need to, to learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God. So having Parkinson's disease, which I have, is God one of God's tools to teach me not to rely on myself, but on God. And I'm still learning. I don't know what grade I'm getting in the class. I tried to withdraw. <laughs> tried to drop the class, which seems to be a requirement. Pleading with God that if it's Parkinson's disease, give it back to Parkinson. It doesn't seem to work. <laughs> he, can, he can have it back. Many of my pleadings are along the lines of, I can't handle this. God says, I know. Rely upon me. Trust me. So by the way, this is pressing the question, where does this idea that God doesn't give us anything we can't handle, where do we get that from? Well, there's a verse that kind of says that, but it doesn't really say that. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's where it comes from. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The temptations Paul is talking about are temptations to sin. He's not talking about suffering. He's talking about temptations to sin. Earlier in the chapter, he gives examples from Israel's evil cravings in the wilderness, um, idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling against God and Moses, and so on. He says these are examples for us not to follow, that we don't be like them, because God judges those sins in the wilderness. Then he says in verse 12, he says, Let anyone who stands take heed lest he fall. So what Paul is saying in verse 13 is, you have no excuse for falling into into sin. Your your temptation is not like unusual, like nobody could has ever gone through what I'm going through. I couldn't help it. I I could there was I've got a good excuse. I've got to know this as I'm excused for the sin. And Paul's saying, no, God makes a way for you out from under it. He always provides a way. He's faithful that you can stand it and you don't have to sin. So please don't tell somebody who's suffering. Remember, God will never give you more than than you can handle. He'll never give you anything you can't handle. Because God does that. Not all the time, thankfully. But he does do it. Sometimes we say, God... Why have you visited this evil upon us? Why why have you done this? Why have you allowed this? Why did you send me to do your will to bring about good that you have promised only to have it backfire? Since I did this, things have gotten worse, and you have not delivered us at all. Now, we could leave it here. It would be a hard place to stop. It's It's where the text ends. And and in reality, this is how things play out a lot of times. A lot of times, the days end, the weeks end, the months end, the years end, and there's no resolution. The cancer is still there. 
The relationship is still broken. The toxic situation at work is still poisonous. But because I, because I love you, I don't want to leave you there. I want to give you a little bit of hope, or a lot of hope. If, if you know the whole, how the whole story plays out, you know that God does deliver Israel, and he, he is faithful to get them out. It's kind of like seeing, reading a book or seeing a movie where you know how it ends, but when you see it even the third or fourth or fifth or tenth time, you still get stressed out for, for how it's going to resolve, even though you know how it ends. Like the, the, the Lord of the Rings. I mean, every time I see that movie or I read the book, it's like I still get stressed out for how it's going to end, even though I know how it ends. So that's how it is with this. Well, in Exodus 6.1, so let's we'll sneak peek. This is where we're going to go next week, but we're going to look at a few verses in Exodus 6 and make some comments about how we have hope in this today. The Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I, I will do to, to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So not only will Pharaoh let them go, he will drive them out. God's going to really work him over, and so get out of here. And then he says in verses 5 through 8, I've heard the groaning of, my, of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the, <clears throat> the burdens of the, of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So what he's saying is, the way you're going to endure this, I'm still not going to break you out of prison right now, but trust in my promise that I'm going to. So that's how we endure suffering, is we trust in God's gospel promises. So we we take what Moses was going through here, and we recognize Christ is the greater Moses. Christ fulfills all that Moses ever hoped for, and we endure our present sufferings by trusting in Christ's gospel promises. In Christ, he has overcome greater enemies. Pharaoh was nothing. Pharaoh was small potatoes to God. Christ overcame far greater enemies, sin, death, and devil for us who believe in him. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what he loves is for us to trust him. So if you need gospel promises, you can go many places in the, in the New Testament, but Romans chapter 8 is chock full of them. So, for example, what... If God is for us, Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God using things getting worse before they get better. He sends his perfect son into the world, sinless, mighty, glorious, clothes him takes on humanity for us. He gets unjustly crucified while things were getting worse, but they got really a whole lot better. He was raised from the dead and guaranteed that all who put their trust and hope in him are freed from sin, freed to have eternal life, freed to serve him with joy and gladness. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sickness, danger, sword. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through Christ, we won't only conquer what afflicts us and threatens to destroy us. We will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus one day, completely like him. Only we won't be God, but we will be like him in every other way. Everlasting joy with Christ as his people. Never to sin, never to suffer or be sick again. Our deliverance will be complete. Deliverance will never backfire again. Deliverance will never backfire again. It'll ne- we'll never, when Christ comes back, we're never going to say it gets worse before it gets better. It'll all be past. Father, we thank you that even though we go through these experiences of things getting worse before they get better, that in Christ we have a certain hope of full and final complete deliverance. Thank you that you're patient with us. Thank you that we can fully trust you for all that we're going through. I pray for your deliverance of many people now in this body who are going through very hard things, severe times of trial and testing. We ask, Father, for your grace and mercy to surround and abound toward us. And you draw us through our hearts deeper into seeing how Jesus, you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. We have the confidence that how will you not, along with him, freely, graciously give us all things that we need to endure until he comes. We praise you for this, Father. In Christ we pray.